0: So, welcome to the first podcast in the series called Spiritual Life in the 21st Century Problems and Possibilities by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and this is Ruth Fitzpatrick. Hello, Ruth.
1: Hello, Toby.
0: How are we feeling today?
1: Pretty good. And you? Not too bad.
0: So what we're going to do today is really try and uncover something of a recent history of suppose you could call it contemplative practice or spiritual practice, particularly framed around East-West, so the emergence of Eastern ideas, Indian or East Asian ideas in places like America and Europe and Australia and so forth, to look into that and to ask us to, to some extent, what has led us here and what does that tell us about where we are now? And I suppose the starting point for that kind of thread is just thinking about our own lives in that we both grew up in the 1980s and 1990s. And both of us looked to the 1960s for inspiration in on all sorts of fronts. On political fronts, on aesthetic fronts, uh, on cultural fronts. And on spiritual fronts too. So was that largely true for you?
1: Hugely. I think um, consciously or unconsciously from... The time of escaping off to, you know, a um, kind of hippie commune, the, the yearning for that type of spiritual, social revolution was, was very strong.
0: Yeah, so I didn't quite escape to a commune, but maybe to some degree I, I wanted to. I mean, I escaped to India and I had a certain utopic vision of university life in the 1990s being all about, rebellion and radicalism and doing nudie runs and all that kind of stuff and i was certainly living that reality but no one else was so uh yeah i suppose we share that and i suppose we both have also uncovered that there's a certain naivety or idealism in trying to reproduce the 1960s and the 1990s which is problematic but maybe the most important thing to realize is that you can't really understand the 1960s without going further back historically. And that's what we want to do in this episode. We want to go back further to you know the American romantics like Emerson and Thoreau, um, people which I'm sure were very seminal in these sorts of communal movements, getting back to nature up around Byron Bay and so forth, to the spiritualists of the late 19th century, to Blavatsky and the theosophists, and maybe extending back towards 19th century Europe and America, and what I think is a kind of Nietzschean problem, a problem of you know, a void of meaning, which is produced by the rise of modernity and science and the collapse of Christianity as something that's sort of epistemologically solid. So let's start there um, and see how far we get. And hopefully we, by the end of the episode, we're somewhere contemporary enough to begin our journey into this series. One thing that I I recently discovered reading this um, fantastic book by a fellow called Rick Fields which was called um, How the Swans Came to the Lake was it was actually very very late when European minds began to really open to Indian ideas to appreciate Indian thinking call it Vedic thinking or Dharmic thinking as something that's rich and maybe potentially useful for people that aren't in that culture so it actually really happens in you know, 19th century. There's a fellow called Sir William Jones, who was a Sanskrit translator. And there are also German philosophers like Hegel and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, who were somewhat um, connected with Indian ideas, either in dialectic or in criticism, or in the case of Schopenhauer, in adopting them. So do I have a question here? I don't really have a question.
1: It's actually quite astounding just when you read these histories just to see the nakedness of um, imperialism or Mm. superiority of European attitudes. And, um, you know, you spoke briefly in the introduction about Blavatsky and Olcott who founded the Theosophical Society. And their history is fascinating in as much as what they did to open Westerners to Indian ideas, as much as how significant they were for the Ceylonese, the Sri Lankans, the Japanese, how much their interest in Buddhism was significant and hugely significant for them in their own efforts either to uh, decolonize or also to fight off the hugely... um, hugely powerful influence of Western materialism.
0: So they're doing a lot of things in the same moment, aren't they? So I mean, I suppose we could say that before people like Sir William Jones and then the Theosophists, Blavatsky, Olcott and so forth, the standard response to say Vedic ideas or Buddhistic ideas would be one of seeing them as incredibly uncouth or lacking in any penetrating Insider understanding, something that has no philosophical basis, Mm -hmm. um, something which is not equipped to compete with, you know, all of what European civilization had uncovered through the rise of modern science and modern philosophy
1: and so forth. They say Christianity as a morally virtuous and, you know, ultimately true way of seeing the world. As far as religious possibilities went
0: so let's move into this notion i I only learned about this very recently someone who's worked on buddhist philosophy academically i sort of had a loose knowledge of theosophy maybe somewhat of a suspicious one in that you know from a scholar's point of view some of the ideas there have been superseded but more recently i've sort of uncovered um, more of a positive understanding of what Blavatsky and Olcott were doing in bringing Indian ideas alive for the minds of non-Indians, really for the first time. So can you explain a little bit about what they were doing, what, the, what Theosophy is all about and um, how that's connected?
1: Well, a very brief backdrop is that um, the, the movement that was huge at the time that Levatsky and Olcott plugged into, particularly in America, was spiritualism, which um, focuses specifically on contacting the dead. Um, so it was things like
0: seances and those it, sorts of exactly. things.
1: Exactly. Now, again, the broader backdrop here, which seems so much alive today, but clearly in a different way then, was the rise of science and the decline of religion um, as a as a potent vessel of meaning and um, conviction even. And this is where the movement that Blavatsky and Olcott founded, the Theosophical Society, kind of came right in the centre of, partly because um, their spirituality was centred on forms of what they regarded and others did at the time as evidence, so direct evidence of a spiritual world. Which... So
0: it's, it's curious that in a way there's a clear rejection of materialism and a clear rejection of, you might say, a kind of scientism that's pervading everywhere, that everyone has a kind of over, overriding belief in meta-science to answer everything. Yet at the same time they're deploying Or they want to uncover some kind of scientific methodology for their contemplative or spiritual outlook or metaphysics.
1: Utterly. And we'll see the same as we explore um, Buddhism's emergence into this um, stream shortly. But um, the central kind of... um, facet of blavatsky's work she she wrote thousands and thousands of pages The first book was isis unveiled was around a notion it's
0: just to be clear it's not mm. the isis uh, no. asio or any other people <laughs> that are listening it's not the isis that we all know about now
1: no not capitals it's not an acronym um refers to the egyptian goddess um but the center of that work and her later works is really around a notion of spiritual evolution, which strongly parallels, you might say, mimics Stalinism. So yes, there was they saw that their work was to infuse scientific ideas into philosophy alongside. they saw that the East held, the strongest repository of spiritual wisdom. And so, in contrast to these attitudes that um, the inherent sense of superiority in Europe, um, this was the strongest kind of um, lay movement, if you like. They weren't scholars as such to really present Eastern ideas as actually the pinnacle of spiritual development.
0: Yep, so they actually rated it higher than anything the West had produced. In a way, in a way the, it's a critique of Western philosophy, Western metaphysics, Western epistemic foundations and so forth. And it's sort of the assertion that the highest knowledge is really found in the East, in the Dharmic traditions.
1: Sure, which to be honest, you hear that now, I kind of think that is assumed. And maybe some people feel like there needs to be a push back from that. But at that time, it was radical. It was absolutely radical and I should add like um, you know Colonel Olcott had a very high standing he he had a background in science he was um, he'd written extensively on agricultural science he was a journalist he was a lawyer he was a colonel in the Civil War all of the kind of um, Uh, you know great um, status for that period of that clash between religion and science so that all gave him you know great credibility as well
0: yeah it's curious actually that um, theosophy seemed to attract so many people of either high political standing or intellectuals people with you might say worldly power or worldly some kind of place in the world worldly Mm. status um, maybe we'll get to that in a moment. But that's always rather perplexed me, but we can leave that aside for the moment. Olcott um, did a great deal to... I mean, you mentioned earlier about his work in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, opening up the Sinhalese to their their tradition of Buddhism because there's a big imperial struggle going on there. Um, and there was a, a drive to get them all to convert to Protestant Christianity and so forth. So he did a great deal to promote Buddhism both within Buddhistic cultures but also bring Buddhism to the West. And He himself became a Buddhist, didn't he?
1: Absolutely and for some people they're considered they considered, they went to uh, what was then Ceylon after India and um, took ordination and um, lay ordination and by some are regarded as the first white Buddhists. But his significance in Sri Lanka and to a less extent Japan but Is pretty amazing when you look at. I mean, he designed what is now the Buddhist flag. There's still an Olcott Day, where in Sri Lanka that they celebrate him. He wrote a book that, and he he really started Buddhist schools and all of this. um, As Toby mentioned, was in the backdrop of um, still a colonial administration that was strongly pushing for Christianity and Christian missionary. Um, work. And once once um, other countries heard about this they wrote to Olcott and there's, you know, letters from him to him from Japanese Buddhists saying, please come to Japan and do what you have done for the Buddhists in, in Ceylon and, and the Indians in India. Um, again, it, and, and he went to Japan and gave thousands of lectures, you know, and, and, and drew, drew hundreds of people to these and they, it was kind of headline news at the time. Primarily based on the fact that it was a white, it was a Westerner valorizing Buddhism and again the context is it's
0: paradoxical isn't it that in order to overthrow or to challenge the kind of colonial powers on this kind of level you need a colonial someone from a colonial place in order to do that like it's interesting that there wasn't someone from you know from Sri Lanka or from Japan that had that kind of clout or was able to galvanize in the same way that Olcott was able to do but we can just leave that as a paradox
1: yeah look and there's all sorts of things about the Japanese translators actually not really saying precisely what Olcott was saying about Buddhism. then didn't necessarily accord with his understanding. Oh, well, that actually leads me to the next
0: important <laughs> question, which is, so, I mean, we've, we've given Blavatsky and Olcott um, some kudos yeah. for what they've been able to do. Um, I think quite rightly so. But I think maybe it's also true that Blavatsky and the Theosophical Movement per se whilst they were opening the west up to the indian and east asian dharmic traditions and so forth really for the first time it's probably also true that they to some degree appropriated these indian ideas into their own kind of system and it's central to the claim of theosophy is it's sort of a universal system so can you tell us about this is, is that problematic or is that some kind of expression of imperialism as well to some degree was that overcooking the pudding?
1: Well, you might want to ask where theosophy is now compared to the practice of Buddhism gained directly from lineage holders, that is, um, you know, essentially Asian practitioners. This was at a time when, you know, there was virtually no contact, as we've pointed out between western populations and the actual um practitioners of these traditions so um very very little was known about um about so there's two problems there
0: one is a lack of actual proper knowledge scholarly knowledge texts that are translated philosophical understanding all of that has taken another century to kind of get a foothold in so i think you know there's been big advances on all of those fronts But also there's kind of a gap of imagination which um, was able to be filled you know so there's certain um, idealisms or utopias utopic imaginings around tibet as this sort of mystical place filled with all these different lamas and masters and so forth Um, do you think that was going on in early theosophy like a kind of imagining Utopic imagination. Well,
1: absolutely, and I mean, later people pointed out as a kind of reverse Orientalism, romanticization where um, all of these spiritual ideals are projected on the East, and undoubtedly that is there alongside the fact that um, Blavatsky, as the prime um, intellect of the movement, uh, in her writings she was framing a system that is primarily theosophical and its drive is to integrate all of the world's traditions and to see kind of a worldview that almost stands above and beyond those and in that sense yes it's a different beast if you like it is its own worldview it is its own theology and in so much as it did raise the standing of indian and um you know other buddhist cultures at the time it didn't meet with them on their own terms per se and that that arose you know within olcott worked mainly in the buddhist cultures themselves and, and tensions arose over time there and um so it's no doubt a uh, you know, it's a construct of itself. Well,
0: you mentioned earlier that there was a kind of Darwinian thread, which the spiritualists and the early theosophists may have been responding to. I've always seen something of a Hegelian thread as well, in that, you know, part of the logic of theosophy is a progressive unfolding of history or an evolutionary unfolding of history. So things are kind of moving towards, moving in some kind of positive direction. On the level of ideas and on all sorts of other levels as well. I suppose what's interesting there is the degree to which there's uh, inconsistencies or maybe even outright contradictions with various Indian traditions. And I mean, I'm no expert on any of this, but from what I can see, there's less inconsistency with some Vedic traditions than there are with others. So, for example, you know, I think the orientation of theosophy merges quite well with Shankara's non-dualistic Vedanta. And that actually plays quite a strong role in some of Blavatsky's writing. But how well it connects, say, with early Indian Vidyamaka or um, the kind of dualist system proposed by the Sankhya's, that's more of an open question. And I think maybe there's more outright inconsistencies or contradictions. I can leave that as a kind of an open question. I mean, we don't want to go too deeply into metaphysics or philosophy. Um, we're looking more at the history today. So returning back to the history, I suppose a big question is, why did theosophy and neo-theosophy, neo-theosophy being the theosophy after Blavatsky, proposed by Leadbetter and Besant and Alice Bailey, why did it become so popular in the early part of the 20th century? I mean, it attracted, as I mentioned before, political leaders influencing, in a way, global politics to some degree. Um, so it became very, very popular. And then almost just as suddenly, it really seemed to peter out or almost collapse, you know, around the 1930s or 40s. Do you have any compelling reason as to why, first of all, why it gained that popularity and then why it lost it?
1: Well look I think um, very crude way I guess we can go back to the kind of charismatic leader and it wasn't if Blavatsky was charismatic in a really typical sense but she was very powerful and um, you know her death I, I don't think although there was some really prominent and really interesting historical figures Annie Besant being one of them who really took up um, the leadership as you've pointed out no one could carry the movement like she did she was the absolute head and and um, of it so in one sense you've got that you know can a movement remain after its uh, charismatic um, founder passes on as far as its initial popularity I think um, Again, speaking to these broader themes, we've been talking about, you know this rapid rise of science and um, and and the real sense of the traditional religions really needing reformation and revival, there was sense they were quite dead. And this theosophy was alive, you know, people having direct experiences. and um, in that sense, very real and a very, actually really quite a complicated and complex system you know it was attracting a lot of intellectuals and yeah it's um, virtually
0: impenetrable i mean you you to really understand it i think it's a good mm. 10 or 20 years at least of like proper study which is a pretty big investment Mm. but a lot of people were making that commitment in that time
1: yeah and so it integrated these different yearnings that people had for a spirituality i guess that had at that time it certainly doesn't anymore which speaks to how more secular in vertical as we are now even though we're talking about this same kind of um, divides debate science religion this really c- crude dualism but you know the a sense of what could pass as being more scientific then was clearly different to what it is now you know but it fulfilled intellectual spiritual yearnings moral yearnings and um, was really so so um, intimately responding to these you know huge upheavals of the time so um you know and then this very you know she was a russian autocrat you know a princess who was highly unconventional and um was doing these incredible writings um so some of the reasons behind its popularity its rapid um fall i've spoken to one point i think i mean This happened over time, but people started to encounter those traditions directly, too. Ah. You know, uh, again... And maybe
0: seeing some inconsistencies or perhaps contradictions, or at least just getting um, a more direct encounter with a particular tradition. So maybe we're now moving into the 20th century and looking at the way, for example, Zen Buddhism... Hmm. comes to America yeah
1: I mean you've got that big gap of the war and I mean you can't avoid the whole Krishnamurti saga too which I won't even bother going into but if people
0: well we should so Krishnamurti was so this is what sometime in the 30s yeah the leaders of theosophy at this time which was
1: Annie Besant and Charles Leadbeater.
0: they thought so it gets a bit messianic at this stage to some degree um, which is another curious strand I think in some aspects of theosophy there, there's still a lot of kind of Christian theology doing some work there um, but they had this idea that there would be a kind of world messiah or world teacher who would or avatar who would incarnate and I don't know what would follow from that but they thought they found the actual person this a young age. boy called Krishnamurti and uh I wasn't
1: called that at the time it wasn't called a that. young Indian boy
0: and so they bestowed that on mm. that kind of title or that um, that weight on him, and ma- and maybe um,
1: he, pulled the plug. <laughs> he pulled the plug after gaining a lot of um, you know ad- adulation and followers. I think um, you know he pulled the plug somewhere in his twenties or thirties.
0: So he actually repudiated being that yes. kind of person, and he repudiated the whole system, the whole system of theosophy, which is which I'm was a huge shock for <laughs> yeah. everyone that was sort of committed to that stage. Yeah. Um, so that, that is kind of um, obvious as a big cause of, um, you know, of fragmenting the movement, of dividing it, of causing people to lose trust in what was going on with the leadership and so forth, and maybe even some of its key ideas. Um, but let's just not dwell on that, but dwell more on the idea of this shift in which you were just speaking of, of being able to encounter Eastern traditions either Mm -hmm. East Asian or Indian traditions, in a way, to some degree, in their own right, without being mediated through a theosophical Mm -hmm. system. Um, So we're now very much in the 20th century. And I'm thinking a little bit about Zen Buddhism. There's a very interesting history there, which other people know a lot more about than I do.
1: You had this this war period too.
0: Yeah, so it was pre-war and then post-war. Yeah. And because Zen Buddhism is anchored in Japan. Uh, there are all sorts of interesting cross-cultural, political dynamics. So anyway, it begins happening in the what, the 20s and the 30s into the 40s, through the war. And then after the war, it seems to really start becoming quite a thing. And um, reading the history, a lot of it is very much on aesthetic grounds. People that are interested in Zen Buddhism in America uh, well known artists, and there seems to be a very strong aesthetic dimension to their relationship with Zen Buddhism. But there's also a kind of very subversive countercultural movement going on as well, and these are like the beatnik figures, like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and so forth, who were interested in flatly rejecting post war consumer culture, you know, the very predicates of American life. So, you know, this maybe starts taking us closer to this sort of 1960s idealism. What can we draw from this period?
1: Or what can we draw from our longing for it um, at at one point and our sense that it wasn't still alive?
0: Well, maybe the same thing that Ginsberg and Kerouac were trying to uncover, which was a life, dedicated to something more, uh, dare I use a word, authentic or more charged with meaning and potency than a nine to five life, Mm -hmm. making enough money to acquire possessions and live the capitalist dream. And I think, you know, it becomes very hard to separate a kind of critical rejection of, you know, modern capitalist culture. Um, which is found in all sorts of movements, but it's clearly, they're, they're, in a way, they're finding that Zen Buddhism, or well, Buddhism per se, is one mode of being able to do that. Commit to the Buddhist Dharma, commit to being a Zen meditator, Zen practitioner. As or w-
1: Or commit to a few elements of Zen tradition that speak to your counterculture priorities and values. I mean, one point along this i think there's a a really interesting contradiction and it's there with um with buddhism from japan's and buddhism and then you know a little bit later more in the 70s you get tibetan buddhism and um and buddhism from vietnam is that in one sense there's there's very genuine elements of buddhism that counterculture figures draw upon and and they see harmony with and animate them but there's also a whole, a whole range of features of Buddhism, both Buddhism and those um, those lineage holders that, that are starting to star in the movement. You know, the Asian practitioners that actually are very counter, the counterculture.
0: In what way? So, what are the things? Let's start with the things that are consistent. Some of the values which are consistent between, say, Zen Buddhism or any other form of Buddhism and. Countercultural rejection.
1: Well, I think um, again they're they're adopted, and I, I don't think in well it, it varies according to how um, can you say transparently those things are understood and adopted, but within within those movements, I mean, there's a, there's kind of anti-intellectualism slash kind of emphasis on direct encounter. Particularly, that's what's drawn out in the repackaging of Zen, which was also very prominent in the counterculture movements and the beatnik right of.
0: So it's a search for kind of mysticism, almost.
1: At least a direct direct experience of reality. Of reality, yeah. Yeah, I think.
0: Oh, so in this way, you could frame it almost negatively as trying to get out of ideology or illusion or something like
1: that. Conformity, and I think that's there too in. uh, this sense of of moving away from social mores and conventionalities, and there's stories of saints in all the traditions, and certain elements of all of Buddhist traditions, whereby you know your ability to go beyond the social conventions represents a certain in, enlightened state of mind or being. You know, if you can do that with true penetrative insight, as well as um, a kind of enlightened. Um, Buddhist ethic then that represents an ideal and I think that is a very strong um, parallel or attraction as well as those well, so that actually know.
0: takes us directly to the things which may be very inconsistent because in the same breath from the point of view of say Buddhism in Tibet or Buddhism in Japan or Korea or somewhere like that well to a large extent those the Buddhism is the convention mm. <laughs> it is what is the kind of status quo and the social more and what is a kind of good moral life. So it's only kind of radical when you're adopting it in a non-Buddhistic context mm. to some degree.
1: It's like being Christian in Japan was once, you know, thought of really radical. But, yeah, and there's... I think there's... Um, you can see um, there's all of these uh, conflicts or tensions, but some of those the Buddhists use successfully too. And... Um, whereby you know it's kind of like no um get a haircut wear a suit get a job you know and in some like you know Trungpa uh, said that there's quite a lot of other teachers that were so
0: Trungpa was a tibetan lama who came to or well, first to the uk and then he went to america and he landed right in the middle of this kind
1: mm-hmm. of remember in the 70s now, yeah, the
0: 60s and 70s um so a bit of water has gone under the bridge and I suppose what he's faced with is um, a whole collection of young people who are signed up to this kind of radical project, this kind of baby boomer um, project of overthrowing all of the mores of the time. And they're all wearing what tie-dye and they're, they're all living crazy <laughs> lives. And, and what's was saying? Like, put on a suit and get a job.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I remember, I think it was Judith or um, Judith not and my... I- PhD supervisor that said, but it's been said many many times as well. It was sort of like they also came and were like, well, if we're going to start anything here, if we're going to get rooted here, um, we're going to need people with jobs, you know, like sort of the economic realities of um, how do we transplant the the dharma here successfully? Um, also, the Priorities, shall we say, the um, the the position of these um, of of the uh, Asian transplanters. The priorities of them were potentially quite different too. You know, um, I remember. I mean, the Dalai Lama didn't really kind of come out big in the West till the eighties. But for people that were meeting him in India, you know, and he was telling them, well, okay, if you want to represent Buddhism in Tibet again, please put on a suit, like. Um, these are people that are often relatively high up in their own social status, but it was the point that they wanted to be presented in a particular way that they thought would be effective within their own political context, which are sometimes absolutely extreme, such as the, you know, the um, the invasion of Tibet by China, um, the situation of the Vietnam War. Is there anything
0: like? Necessarily buddhistic or dharmic in that though or is it more um, political economic in that, I mean thinking about Tibet, it was plainly a feudal system and uh, you know, almost you could almost call it a theocratic buddhistic theocratic feudal system with the aristocracy kind of supporting the mon- monasteries and so forth so I suppose the question is is that injunction that mm. westerners should be Wearing suits and being of high social status. Is that a kind of, uh, you know, is it maybe inconsistent with Buddhist Dharma per se and going back to the, the original Buddhism?
1: So many ways you can look at this because, you know, if you want to look at through a Dharmic lens, you know, this would be maybe more how some people looking at Trungpa's behavior. And I know other people have talked about, you know, alarms going off from McDonald's and a, as a way of trying to disrupt the the frame the spiritual frame of what what those people at the time were kind of like oh no this is spiritual that that was a very narrow paradigm so they're actually trying to break up their own conformity of non-conformity right so you can rewrite it in that way you could see it in that way as dharmic in the sense of trying to uproot um you know reified ways of seeing so any
0: conventions be they feudal and buddhistic or you know some kind of western reification of what spiritual means and what worldly means that um at the end what's dharmic is uprooting all of those i think
1: i think you can very much see all the threads running through there i think um that there were economic, cultural, political priorities um, at play and that there were also genuine attempts to transmit a, a type of dharma, a type of understanding of what, what it meant. And, yeah, I think you can see all that, but, but may, may, maybe in some elements that was going counter to at least maybe a more yogic, mendicant, you know, but those tensions, as you would be at pains to say, those tensions have been in Buddhism throughout. Whether you, you know, you, you discard all institutional ways and social ways of being, and we've got great stories of yogis and um, monks that do that and reach great realizations, and then you've got other institutional builders that build systems and frameworks, and there's that tension always there in the tradition.
0: And Moving aside from Buddhism for just a moment, uh, or maybe um, thinking about it more broadly, if you go back to that 50s and especially 60s and 70s period, the period where the baby boomers were flowering and rejecting and adopting all sorts of East Asian and and South Asian um, spiritualities, it seems to me there was a real smorgasbord on offer in that time. So there was certainly Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Mm -hmm. and so forth, but there was clearly a lot of, you know, Vedantic and, you yeah, know, Hindu and other Hindu kind yeah. of traditions, um, and a lot of kind of swamis and yogis from India coming across and having devotees and followers. You know, I mean, the Beatles followed. Was it Maharishi? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So there's all of this kind of stuff going on. And actually, if you look back at the scholarship of that age, um, what was being translated and what people were interested in. I'd say in equal measure, there was a lot of stuff going on in Buddhism, but also in the more idealist Indian traditions as well. And somehow or other, that seems to have dropped away to a large extent. And Buddhism has flourished, and some of the other um, more orthodox Vedic traditions have not really taken a foothold in the same way.
1: In a less institutional way. I mean, there's so, many, there's so many different ways to look at this. On the one hand, I think you could say they've been... They've been transplanted and inculcated in the West in a much more subtle, pervasive way. I mean, yoga is such a obvious example. I was going to mention yoga. Example. But yoga, I think. But look, putting. Look, if we use that as a kind of parallel, if you think about the same. Um, if you think about ideas and forms of meditation, like that. The sense that, you know, well, there is still. I mean there was TTM was really big right hmm. um, be- be- before our time and that was Hindu influence like I think you know I mean um, that's a kind of western no, movement in Hinduism and I think maybe they're not as prominent and maybe that's, maybe there's also like that's a political cultural thing there too in there. well that's
0: what I was leading to because what mm. I can sort of see in the scholarship so this is coming at it from very much maybe a philosopher's point of view which might be connected with something going on culturally as well or it might not Mm. but what i was seeing was that there are certain trends in you might say intellectual trends which gave rise to a closer affinity between say western philosophers and buddhism than they would have western philosophers and vedanta in that things move very much away from any kind of idealism Mm. And um, with the kind of rise of linguistic philosophy and so forth, the Buddhistic kind of arguments that are found Mm -hmm. in thinkers like Nagarjuna attract a lot of interest because there's a connection with um, philosophers like Wittgenstein and Derrida and these sorts of thinkers. And so there's a great, not an explosion, but a lot of work starts moving in that direction. People are animated by that intellectual trend and far less animated by anything more Mm. idealist.
1: uh, Which you're making that parallel with. The Hinduism broadly.
0: Well, there are, there are idealist philosophies in, in Buddhism as well. Mm. But, you know, maybe this actually takes us back to Theosophy too, which I think has mm. this kind of idealist characteristic to it. It's somewhat Neoplatonic and somewhat um, Vedantic and somewhat Hegelian. Like, they're, they're sort of this idea of... I don't uh, well, we won't go into it, but... <laughs> I, I, th- I suppose what I'm saying yeah. is that somehow or other that just drops off completely from
1: so you maybe since it seems like maybe what you're saying that buddhism kind of reboots itself if you like or can more easily move into a modernist come postmodernist society worldview. That that's what i was trying into. to say is that are yes. getting to yeah that's that's got that, that's persuasive enough
0: because it's kind of reductionist in its in its basic approach um and you know that that does accord very nicely with the kind of post-structuralist movement
1: And and yet is that the whole story of buddhism how much has how much of that is is genuine to buddhism how much of that is really amplified to be in reflection or harmony with that
0: Well, then we can shift more to a cultural level. And is is that what's been happening to Buddhism? Has it been morphing itself into a way which is conducive to modern or postmodern kind of capitalist society such that it can kind of flourish in that context? Uh, Which takes us almost in the exact opposite dimension in the sort of 1960s or countercultural form. And this is something um, we've done a little bit of academic work on, actually, was just thinking about contemporary buddhism
1: so has has buddhism as it was in the counterculture period has it moved away from that because it's gone closer to what it is and it was dressing up in guises that it could fit in then or has it moved further away in reflection of the increasing kind of neoliberal scientism of the 80s 90s twenty first century, or oh, is that countercultural period just not really a point that you should take as a <laughs> departure point?
0: I think it's that... very good just to leave that as a big open question. But there is something about the appeal of Buddhism to contemporary modern people in living in industrialised societies and what appeals to them about it. Is something which I think is only a little bit Buddhistic. And this is the idea of, you know gaining control over anxieties of taming the mind so that you become more productive in the office of becoming you know more of a well-rounded kind of human being but doing away with any of the more grandiose stuff particularly the critical stuff critiquing the basic logic of a samsaric life and doing away with any idea of enlightenment or awakening or anything like that basic axiom that buddhistic and dharmic Axiom of enlightenment and unenlightenment, maybe gets turned down quite a lot, and is replaced with this idea of develop mindfulness in the office. You know, become a better parent by taming your mind and practicing the parameters and so forth. Is something like that going on?
1: Well, there's certainly that critique has been made. It reminds me of something a uh, um, Australian Tibetan Buddhist nun who set up. Um, foundation in india with providing education for young girls i remember once when i was interviewing her and she said um you know you get a lot of talk about emotional problems this is within buddhism in the west but not a lot of talk about renunciation per se and i mean renunciation can mean many different things but it's certainly pretty foundational to all buddhist paths So, Um, in other
0: words, we want to keep a nice middle-class life. We want to keep our possessions and our house and our job and keep good income coming in and keep developing on the right kind of professional line or whatever and then keep Buddhism sort of coincides with that somehow or other. But in a way, what you're saying is that, really strictly speaking, Buddhism would ask us to question that more Directly or even give it up properly.
1: Depends what renunciation really means. I mean, I don't think it's asking everyone to, to go into poverty either, and people are all constrained by broader structural, economic, social pressures. Um, you know, and in, in kind of trying to look at where Buddhism is at now and how much it has been co opted or not, it's also really important to highlight kind of the obvious point that Buddhism has always, always, always been changing. You know, and at what point though do we say that change is morphing it into kind of irrelevance and at what point do we say that change is skillful and that people who are working certain jobs would be working them anyway and this is actually giving them some... You know, some peace of mind, some, you know, ability to navigate the system that we're in. Of course, those that would like to see Buddhism operating more radically would find problem with that, right?
0: I suppose it comes down to a very thorny question, Uh, something actually I used to get by reading some of your academic work. If you really take a Buddhistic line, like you actually apply Buddhist metaphysics to Buddhism itself, well you can't find anything essentially Buddhist, because the Buddhists are non-essentialists. And so even the Buddhist Dharma is itself, you know, merely conventional. So that accords with what you're saying. It must necessarily change, it must morph into whatever cultures and societies it moves into. But at the same time, if you take that line, then there really isn't anything Definitively or recognisably Buddhist anywhere or any time through its 2500 year history. And I think that's going too far. I think Touch there religion. can be identifiable kind of Buddhistic themes, ways of looking at things, ways of understanding reality, and even, you know, kind of hard metaphysical.
1: Probably if issues. you took your course, you'd find out, your Buddhist philosophy course from Arate, right. you Maybe. would Maybe. find out some of those central axioms.
0: Yeah, I think it's worth asking that kind of question. Well, in any case, we've uncovered uh, some rather thorny issues, and they're thorny issues which are with us now in our our contemporary epoch here in the 21st century. So I think the podcast has served its purpose pretty well, which is to take us on something of a recent historical journey through comparative East-West dialogue and praxis. Um, So it's a good spot to end. Is there anything you'd like to end by saying?
1: stay tuned for more podcasts
0: so thanks ruth very much i found a lot of your responses very very animating and interesting you're
1: very uh, kind very kind very generous to
0: and i uh, look forward to the next one i
1: look forward to chatting with you further.
0: stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au